Let's bow our heads, Heavenly Father. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to come here today and gather as your people, as your church, to worship you freely, to worship you unobstructed, uninterfered with, unlegislated against. Lord, we gather in your name today, and it is for your kingdom's purpose that we seek to hear your words today. Speak to us, Lord. Open up our hearts. Open up our minds. Speak through Dustin today so that his words are your words, and we leave here committed and changed forever to seek what you'd have us do and to serve you fully and completely. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, what an awesome morning. I am so excited to be here with you guys. Again, my name is Destin Garner. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Rock Point Church. There's this, uh, Donald Miller writes a book, Blue Light Jazz, and in the book he has this quote. He says, sometimes you have to watch somebody else love something before you can love it yourself. And that was the case with me in the book of Jonah. I was down at DTS taking a class, Bible study methods and hermeneutics, and Dr. Mark Yoborough He did a three-hour lesson on the book of Jonah, and I came home to my wife, Jamie, and I said, I'd pay $1,000 for you to hear that message. It was so amazing. I watched him love the scripture and love that book, and it kind of spilled over into my life as well. And so the Saturday after Christmas, Randy asked me to come preach for him on Saturday night, and I was like, I've got to do Jonah. And then so this uh, coming Sunday, or this Sunday, Ron said, hey, I'd love for you to do the 9, 30, and 11. I said, i, I got to continue that. So what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to catch you guys up to the Saturday night service. That time I spent about 45 minutes on the first four verses, so we're going to hit those really quick. And then we'll go ahead and push through and try to get through the rest of the chapter, God willing. So, Jonah, two things we need to know, just kind of understand right off the bat before we get into the book. Number one, I want to address the historicity of Jonah. There's lots of people who say, you know, I'm not sure if Jonah really happened, and maybe just an allegory, maybe just symbolism, or or a guy really can't be in the belly of a fish for those days, right? And so I don't have time to go through and address every single issue in the book of Jonah, but I'm going to say here's two people that have given me greater confidence that Jonah is true and right and authoritative and inspired, and we can believe it. The first is C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis writes, he says, if you can believe in the miracle of the incarnation, the rest is easy. And I love what he's saying there. There are things, miracles, such as the resurrection, the incarnation, that are tenets to our faith, that we have to believe. And he says, if you can believe those, then believing that Jonah lived in the belly of a fish for three days, that should be pretty easy to stomach. Oh, come on, just a little, all right, there we go. We're, wake up 9.30 here. And so C.S. Lewis gives me some confidence in the book of Jonah. The second man that gives me confidence in this book is Jesus Christ. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. And I love that Jesus is the one who turns his attention to Jonah. He could use anything, anyone to quote and to show what he's about to do, but he chooses Jonah. And that lets me know that Jesus believes that Jonah is true, that he was a real person in a real time in a real place. And we can put our faith and confidence in that. So if Jesus believes in Jonah and we don't, you've got bigger fish to fry. All right, that's my last one. We won't do any more of that anyway. Second thing I want to address before we jump into Jonah is Jonah's name. His name, Jonah, Hebrew, it's Yonah. 
It's a word. It literally translates as dove. And dove, we see throughout the entire scripture, is symbolic. It's representative of love and of peace. So right off the bat, you have this character, Yonah, who's supposed to be a loving, peaceful person. But what you already know and what you'll see in this chapter is actually Jonah is anything but loving and peaceful. Actually, he's quite hateful in this chapter. He's quite rebellious. And so it just kind of sets up this irony that things aren't the way we expect them to be. We're looking for his character to be loving and peaceful, but he's not. So look through that irony throughout the book. So with that, we'll turn to Jonah. You can go in your Bibles. Verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And right there, I love that because right off the bat, we realize that Jonah is a prophet of God. God speaks a special direct revelation to Jonah. And again, I believe this kind of sets up the irony we're going to see later in the book. If anyone is to know God's will, if anyone is to know what God wants and hear God's word, it would be a prophet of God, wouldn't it? But yet, here we see Jonah, later on in the chapter, is going to be anything but what we would expect. And in verse 2, he says, God says to Jonah, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because their wickedness has confronted me, has come up before me, and I'm aware, I know of that. And so he sends Jonah to Nineveh. And now Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire at one time. And the the Assyrians are infamous people for for many different reasons. But for the most part, they're infamous for their brutality and their cruelty in battle. I have a quote from the king of Assyria, Assurnasirpal. He was the king of Assyria from 883 to 859. And this is a quote, something he said after they had just finished a battle, just finished a war. Listen to how gruesome and violent they are. 600 of their warriors I put to the sword. 3,000 captives I burned with fire. I did not leave a single one of them alive. Their corpses I formed into pillars. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. Their governor I flayed his skin and spread it up on the wall of the city. I cut off their fingers, their noses, their ears, and many of them I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living, another of heads. I bound their heads to post around the city. 700 men I impelled on stakes against their city gate. Wow. This is the people. This is the king of where God is sending Jonah. So not only are they infamous for being violent and grotesque, but Jonah's familiar with these people. This is not a strange people to him. Probably a hundred years before Jonah would actually go to Nineveh, the Assyrian army marched on Israel, attacked Israel just a hundred years before. And I don't know this, but could it be that Jonah was still able to look around and see the destruction from that battle? Could it be that Jonah still remembers his grandfather talking about the atrocities of that war? So these people are violent people, and Jonah's familiar with them. He may not hate them, that may be too much of a strong word, but it's pretty easy to say that Jonah did not like the Ninevites. They might have been his enemies. And so this kind of leads us to this question, Why Jonah? Of all people, if Jonah really did not like these people, why does God choose Jonah to send to the Ninevites? And I wrote this, I says, I don't believe God chose Jonah in spite of Jonah's heart, 
I believe he chose Jonah because of Jonah's heart. See, God asked Jonah to do exactly what Jonah did not want to do in order to reveal and expose Jonah's hard and sinful heart. See, God was seeking a double victory. Not only did God want to win the hearts of the Ninevites, but he needed to rescue Jonah's heart in the process. I love this quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He is a man who was called to a Nineveh of his own, and he had to love those he could have so easily hated. And in this quote, he talks about winning a double victory. Dr. King said this, To our most bitter opponents we say, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes, threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour. Beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And one day we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and to your conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. I love that quote. Because God is doing something when he calls Jonah to Nineveh. He's winning a double victory. Not only the Ninevite's heart, but he needs to rescue Jonah's heart in the process And so kind of the first application, I think the first question you and I need to be asking ourselves is, where is God calling us? What is your Nineveh? What is my Nineveh? To whom and to where is God calling you to minister? And I would say this, it's probably not going to be easy. It may be the hardest thing you've ever had to do. See, God knows our weakness and he wants to make us better. So sometimes God will call us to do that which we don't want to do. To go where we don't want to go and to talk to people we don't want to talk to. See, God looks us over. He finds the weak spot and says, right there. That's where I need to call you into action. That family member who is just awful, God may be calling them to move in with you. Oh, I know. Needs to win your heart too, right? That, that co-worker who you just can't stand, God may be putting you on a six-month project with them. And, and that, that other parent, you know, that has that kid, well, that kid's going to be on your kid's sports team for the rest of the year. And you're just like, God, what are you doing to me? And God's like, I'm seeking a double victory. Not only do I want to win their heart, but I need to rescue your heart in the process as well. See, it's not that we disobey God everywhere. It's that we don't surrender to God somewhere. And that's why God calls Jonah to Nineveh, why he's calling you and calling me each to our own Nineveh. In verse 3, we see how Jonah responds. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish, away from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. Now, this is supposed to be funny. This is the irony, right? We have a prophet of God. And God says, Jonah needs you to go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, okay. He gets up, he looks toward Nineveh, and just runs the other way. Literally, he does. Nineveh was about 500 miles uh, east of where Jonah was. He gets on a ship going 2,000 miles west, okay? Just running, complete, deliberate disobedience from God. 
And he's heading to Tarshish. Tarshish is modern-day Spain. So he's leaving from one side of the Mediterranean, going to the complete opposite. And Tarshish is a port town. Who knows what Jonah's doing? Maybe he's thinking he's going to hop a ship and go down to Africa. I would say this. Jonah's just trying to get as far away from God as he possibly can. Had he known America existed, he probably would have been on a ship setting sail to America. He's got to get as far away as possible. It says this, it says when he paid the fare, it actually literally translates as he paid her fare. Rabbinic tradition says Jonah didn't just buy passage on the ship away from God, Jonah bought the ship going away from God. And I just love that, right? If we're going to disobey, we're going out in flames. Like, I want the whole ship going away from God. And I think it's interesting, too, Tarshish is a pagan city. And it's just like Nineveh, but Jonah has no problem going there. I think that just kind of alerts us to the fact there was something about those people in Nineveh. Again, maybe why God called him specifically to that place. So Jonah runs from the Lord, and I'll be honest, I run from the Lord, and and maybe you do too. And so I was trying to think, why is it? What are the, the thoughts that are going through our mind when we flee from God? And I got three down here. Number one, sometimes we really think we can get away from God. Yeah, I'll get on this ship, or I'll take this job, or I'll move to this place, or wherever, and I'll really get away from God. He won't see me. But the truth is, you can't escape God's omnipresence. You can't escape God's omnipresence. Number two, maybe we think this. We think we're really in control. This might have been a great reason for Jonah. You know, see, he didn't like the Ninevites. He didn't want them to repent and turn to God. And so he's thinking, you know, if I just don't go, then they'll have to face the judgment coming to them. Which is silly because we can't escape God's sovereignty. God could use anyone else. He could have taken a rock and marched it into Nineveh and preached the word of repentance there. We can't escape God's sovereignty. Third reason, maybe this is why we run, this is why Jonah ran. We think we can forget about it. Sometimes that's what we want to do. We just want to escape out of sight, out of mind. I don't want to be around those people, that place, anything that's going to remind me of my disobedience. But the thing is, we can't escape God's conviction, his sovereignty, or his omnipresence. See, the thing is, in our disobedience, or at least in mine, I become the most gullible person in the world. I'll believe any lie I tell myself to justify my sin. And I didn't realize this for a while until one day there was a mother who came to my office, and I was counseling her about her son. Her son had come up through the student ministry I was leading at that time. He had left the college and began smoking pot. And so she comes in and she's like, Destin, what do I do? You know, I've caught him, I've confronted him, and I've asked him to stop. And I said, you you confronted him about it? She said, yeah, absolutely. I said, well, what did he say? And he said, Mom, don't worry about it. I'm not getting high, high, high. I'm just getting high. And it hit me then that we'll justify anything. We'll lie to ourselves. We'll believe anything in our disobedience. So be wary of the excuses we make because there's never a good reason not to do what God is calling us to do. It just so happens, I think this is so fascinating, that there is a ship waiting for Jonah at Joppa. And just so you don't miss it, there's always a ship at Joppa waiting to take you away from the Lord. There's always an excuse a way out, someone to tell us what we want to hear. 
See, God calls us to love Him and believe in Him as Lord and as Savior, but there's always some book, some professor, some documentary, some argument, some historian, some person who is happy to tell us it's all a lie. God calls us to love, forgive, to have a lifelong covenant with our spouses, but there's always someone who will tell you it's your spouse's fault. There's always someone who will tell you you deserve better. There's always going to be someone willing to flirt or do more. God calls us to be honest, but there's always going to be a way to cheat, a shortcut to get ahead, and a way not to get caught. God calls us to give, but there's always something vying for our money. God calls us to serve, there's always something vying for our time. He calls us to love, there's always someone or something to hate. He calls us to be patient, but there's always something annoying us. He calls us to be peaceful, but there's always an argument to be won and a point to be made. See, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. For every truth, there is an equal and opposite lie. And for every call to go to Nineveh, there's a ship at Joppa waiting to take you away from the Lord. And I would say, don't let that ship sail with you on it. Verse 4, then the Lord hurled a violent wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose at the sea that the ship Threatened to break apart. That means threatened to break into tiny little pieces. And we won't spend time on this verse because this verse mirrors verse 17. But I just want you to see it was God who brought the storm. God sent the storm. Verse 5, the sailors were afraid. And each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. And meanwhile... Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the vessel, and he'd stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. And I would say, it takes one wicked, scary storm to make sailors afraid, right? They're used to being out there. That's their job is to go through this. But these sailors are just shaken. They can't stand. I mean, this is one massive, scary storm. Rabbinic tradition says that there are probably 70 different nationalities, 70 different people represented on this boat, each crying out to his or her little g God. And what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. I love that, right? 70 people crying out to whatever God they can come up with, and nothing happens. To me, that just tells us this, that there is no other God besides Yahweh, the one true and living God. And I hope you noticed in this chapter, the author is using some directional language here. See, God says, arise, get up, go to Nineveh, which is at a higher elevation than where Jonah was located. But in Jonah's disobedience, he goes down to Joppa, down onto the ship, down into the ship to lay down. Later, he's going to go down into the sea and down into the belly of the well. And what we'll see is in chapter 2 when Jonah repents, then the, the, the fish vomits Jonah up onto the shore, and he says, go up to Nineveh, and he goes up to Nineveh. And I wrote this, it seems that the direction of Jonah's life is determined by his obedience to God. And I don't know if that's ever true with you, but it definitely is with me. And when I'm disobeying God, my head hangs. My shoulders slump, and I drag my feet. I'm more gloomy and more depressed and more apathetic. But when I follow God in faithful obedience, I'm able to kind of lift my head and puff out my chest, and I'm able to go through life's challenges regardless of what it is. It seems that Jonah, and even my life sometimes, my direction is determined by my obedience. 
See, Jonah here, he's physically, emotionally, spiritually down. He's numb, he doesn't care, and he's trying to escape. I mean, isn't this why he's sleeping? How else could you sleep in such a massive, violent storm? Because Jonah's just done. He's given up. And it may be that Jonah's disobedience not only brought him down locationally, but physically, spiritually, and emotionally as well. And so we see in verse 6, the captain approaches Jonah and says to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up and call to your God, and maybe this God will consider us, and we won't perish So the sailors are fighting for their life, and a pagan sailor has to come to the prophet of God to tell him to pray. And notice that the sailor here, the captain, he uses little g God. That's going to change later. Verse 7, come on, the sailors said to each other, let's cast lots, and then we'll know who's to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots, and the lots singled out Jonah. Again, I don't believe this is an accident. I see it's just another display of God's sovereignty working even through the pagan principles and practices. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business? Where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? And so they're desperate and they've kind of got Jonah by the shoulders and what's going on? The Lord singled out you, tell us. And the next verse in the chapter is the most important verse of the entire first chapter. And we know this because Jonah 4 1, 4 through 17 is a chiasmus, kind of weird word, but it comes from the Greek letter chi, the X, right? And it's that these verses and these passages and these phrases are mirroring each other until it comes to a central verse. And it's highlighting that verse. That verse steps out and says, this is the pinnacle, most important verse of the entire chapter. And here's that verse, verse 9. Jonah answered them. He says, I am a Hebrew I worship Yahweh, the God of heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. Why is that the most important verse? I think for two reasons. Number one, it points out God's sovereignty. And number two, the more important, I think, is it points out Jonah's hypocrisy. See, Jonah says, I worship Yahweh, but yet he's running from Yahweh. I think Jonah just says, hey, this is so important because you know what? We know all the right words to say and we'll say them, but our lives are oftentimes a complete contradiction to the words that we say. We all know that what we say matters, that words are important, but we also know that actions speak louder than words. Benjamin Franklin said, well done is better than well said. Unfortunately for Jonah and even for ourselves, Sometimes we are more well-spoken about our faith than we are spoken well of because of our faith. Verse 10, the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them, just quick sidebar, I find that ironic. He's just like, they're like, why did you buy the ship going to Tarshish? I'm fleeing from the Lord's presence. Okay, come on, you know, let's go. And they don't care if Jonah ruins his life until it starts affecting their own life. And I would just say, if you find some friends like that, you probably ought to keep better company than Jonah kept. Verse 11, so they said to him, what should we do to calm the sea that is against us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Do it that it may quiet down for you, for I know that I am to blame for this violent storm that is against you. See, it was the pagan practice 
and the pagan belief that you had to appease the wrath of the gods, sometimes through human sacrifice. And here we see Jonah so disobedient, he's fled, he's, he's become a conformist. He's suggesting these pagan ways. And Jonah, I don't think he believes he's going to live. He's not like, throw me over so I can swim to sea and get out of here. I think Jonah's saying, throw me over, I'm done. This is the end. In verse 13, nevertheless, the men row hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. I just love the back and forth that takes place here. Jonah, what are we to do? And he's like, throw me overboard. And they're like, no, we're not doing that. You know? And so they just they start rowing and rowing as hard as they can. And of course they can't make it. Why? Because you can't save yourself. And you can't save anyone else. There's a great verse that just highlights God alone saves. Not in our effort. In verse 14, after they've tried and they can't save themselves, they call out to the Lord, please, Yahweh, don't let us perish because of this man's life and don't charge us with innocent blood for you, Yahweh, have done just as you please. They're no longer addressing our God as little g, God, but addressing him as Yahweh. I think they've got it. I think they've come to understand who this God is they're dealing with. And just so you know, when it says don't charge us with innocent blood, they're talking about Jonah there. Jonah is anything but innocent. I think they're just kind of covering themselves in this process, kind of, hey, innocent before proving guilty. You know, we haven't officially tried Jonah, so he's innocent in our eyes, but he's telling us he's the guilty party. He's telling us to uh, throw him overboard. So we're just doing what he says, God, right? That's what they're saying there about the innocent blood. In verse 15, they act. They pick Jonah up and they throw him into the sea. And the sea stops its raging. Again, God's sovereignty. The men feared the Lord even more. And they'd offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That term, feared the Lord, in the Old Testament is often a euphemism for salvation, for faith. And could it be that they went up to Jerusalem and actually made vows and sacrifices to the Lord? Jonah is at the bottom of the ocean floor in disobedience. And now the pagan sailors are up in Jerusalem making vows and sacrifices out of obedience. And I love that this is awesome to me, that God uses Jonah's disobedience to bring more people to God than he would have if Jonah would have just obeyed in the first place. Right? This reminds me of Joseph saying to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. And I love serving a God like that. A God that's bigger than my sin. He can even use my mistakes and my screw-ups and my mess-ups to redeem more people than he would have had I just obeyed in the first place. Again, God's sovereignty is on full display here. And I wrote, God's will is going to be accomplished with your cooperation or without your cooperation. And so I pray that you and I don't fearfully flee like Jonah, but we would faithfully follow. And you wouldn't miss out on the joy and the blessings that come with obedience. Last verse, 17. And now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. So here we have a prophet of God who's gone on this journey. He's disobeyed God. He's ignored the call. He's fled. He's gone down, down, down. He's depressed. He's apathetic. He's given up. He's kind of conforming to pagan practices and principles maybe. And he's like, just throw me overboard. He hits the water, and I don't even think he tries to swim. 
think he just sinks. I don't think he tries to take a big breath of air. It's dark. It's cold. I think he's about to open his mouth and end it all. In that moment, there's this commotion that happens. I don't think Jonah knows he's in a whale. He has eyes closed. All he knows is that he opens his mouth, and now he's kind of in this tight, cramped, moist, smelly space. In chapter 2, you see Jonah prays, and he says, I prayed from the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead, the place of the grave. Maybe Jonah thought he had ended it all here. He's at his very lowest point, his most disobedient point, his most apathetic point. And what does God do? He sends a fish to swallow Jonah. Why? Why would God do that? I think it's this. It's because God loves Jonah, even in his disobedience. And God loves you, and God loves me, even in our disobedience. And so he sends the storm and the fish. I don't think those were acts of God's wrath, but rather acts of God's mercy. See, God loves Jonah enough not to let him flee to Tarshish. God loves Jonah enough not to let him die drowning in the ocean. So I would say, if you're here today, and maybe you haven't fully accepted the call of God to go to your Nineveh, maybe you're fleeing, maybe you're living in some disobedience, I would pray that God would use storms fish, people, whatever it is to bring you back to him. I wrote this, even if it hurts, even if it costs, or it's scary, or it's uncomfortable, or it's not easy, I pray God would do whatever it takes to rescue your heart and my heart. Because I believe this, that God is more interested in our holiness than he is our happiness. God is more interested in us conforming to the image of Christ than he is our comfort. God is more interested in pursuing us than he is punishing us i'll end with this story my home group did a read a book soul detox by craig rochelle and i loved it so much we even made it our camp theme for student ministry camp in the book craig ends on this very last chapter and he he tells this story it's about this young man 14 15 years old and he comes to his mom and says mom i would love to go uh to this movie it's rated r so what do you think mom and so mom sits there and says well, tell me, does it have any bad stuff in it? You know, we don't want you going to any bad things. And so the son thinks about it. He says, there's just a little bit, just a little bit of bad stuff in there, Mom. She says, okay, go up to your room, get cleaned up, take a shower. When you come back down, I'll take you to the movie. So the son does. He runs up, and he comes back down about 30 minutes later. And there on the kitchen table, as he, as he hits the last step, he sees the brownies Mom has made for him. This big, awesome plate of brownies, moist gooey, juicy, I love them, you know, glass of cold milk there beside it. And so the son grabs, he's like, Mom, you're amazing, brownies in the movie, this is awesome. And he, he sticks the brownies, he's about to bite it, Mom's like, hold on just one second. And it touches his lips, he doesn't actually bite it, and she says, I did something a little different this time, you know, secret ingredient. And he's like, okay, what, what is it? She said, well, you know, our dog Fido, he just took a, a number two in the backyard, and I thought I'd take it and mix it in with the brownies. And the kid's like, oh, it's disgusting. It's terrible. I don't, I don't want to eat this. This is, this is gross. Why did you do this, Mom? And she goes, oh, don't worry about it. It's just a little bit of bad stuff in there. And so the son realized he's not going to the movie that night. <laughs> and he heads back up to his room. And I love that story because it really gets at our human nature that we have 
zero tolerance for bad things in our food, right? If there's a hair in my sandwich, I want my meal free. Everyone in the restaurant's getting their meal free. I want the restaurant closed down, right? Just because of a hair. I'm not, zero tolerance for bad stuff in my food. Maybe you love eating that stuff. I don't like it. We have zero tolerance for that. But here's my hope and my prayer, for me at least. I wish I had that same zero tolerance when it came to obeying God. That I would never say, no, it's, it's okay. Or I'll make an excuse or I'll justify it. I wish I had more zero tolerance. God sent me to Baylor. That was my Nineveh. And I justified every sin and made excuses for everything I did there. And God didn't send the fish. He sent my father. And he didn't send a storm. He sent a letter in the mail. And here's why I believe that, that God rescued me. And he won my heart. And he won Jonah's heart. That's all I say is that he is pursuing you. And he wants to rescue you. And he loves you just the same. So if God gives you a call, I pray you have faithfully follow so that he could win a double victory. I'll pray and our worship team will come lead us in a closing song. God, thank you so much for the story of Jonah. I love Jonah because I see myself in Jonah. I don't see myself a lot in Joseph, who's just a perfect character, but Jonah who runs, who flees, who's disobedient. I get that. And God, it hurts. This passage stings because I know I make excuses and I justify things. And I know I need to be more obedient to, to faithfully following you. So God, I pray for all of us in here that we would do that. That you would reveal to us who it is that we kind of hate. Or who it is that we don't really love like we should. And God, as much as uncomfortable as it may be, I pray you would send us to that person, to those people. That you would win a double victory in our lives. God, I love you. I pray a, pray a blessing over this entire congregation and church. That you would use us to make an eternal difference in the lives of this community. We love you so much. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In your name I pray.